This Daily 202 podcast is sponsored by Nokia. Nokia builds secure networks that keep America strong. That's why 90% of the U.S. depends on Nokia to stay connected. Learn more at nokia.com slash open to more. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 16th. In today's news, North Korea blows up its joint liaison office with the South, dramatically raising tensions. Cars have rammed into crowds of peaceful protesters at least 19 times this month, and volunteers are putting their lives on the line as guinea pigs for the coronavirus vaccine. But first, the big idea. Gerald Bostock joined a gay recreational softball league seven years ago. Signing up for the Hotlanta Softball League cost him his job in the Child Welfare Services Department for Clayton County, Georgia. He was fired for, quote, conduct unbecoming of a county employee. That meant he didn't have health insurance as he recovered from prostate cancer. But it set in motion a legal fight that led on Monday to a landmark decision from the Supreme Court, which ruled six to three that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 protects against discrimination based not just on race and gender, but also sexual orientation. And now Gerald's name will forever appear in constitutional law textbooks. After reading Justice Neil Gorsuch's majority opinion, validating his right not to be fired simply because he was gay, Gerald reflected on the journey from the den of his Atlanta home. When I lost my job, it was my dream job. So imagine having that uh, that you went to every day and, and you enjoyed doing it uh, and then to have it suddenly taken away from you because you decided to join a gay recreational softball league. Uh, you know, I, I lost my income. I, I mentioned that I had lost my insurance while I was still recovering from prostate cancer. I lost friends and, and relationships with, with many colleagues. Uh, I had to sell my home in that community. Uh, so it, the journey's been difficult. The court ruling grouped three related cases involving employees who said they were fired because of their sexuality or gender identity. Gerald was the only plaintiff still alive to see the outcome. Amy Stevens, a funeral director who was fired because she was transgender, died last month of kidney failure after attending oral arguments in her case last fall. Donald Zarda, a skydiving instructor who was fired because he was gay, died in 2014 leaving his sister and partner to advance his case. Gerald, who's 56, plans to return to a trial court in Georgia to fight his case after all these years of legal roadblocks. He and his partner, Andy, toasted with champagne last night to celebrate the ruling, which he hopes will bring a little bit of sunshine in some dark times. He told my colleague Samantha Schmidt that more work remains to be done. He wants Congress to pass the Equality Act, which would enshrine non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people in employment, housing, credit, education, public spaces, and other realms of American life. The state of Georgia has also yet to pass a hate crime law. He says joining the Gay Softball League was one of the best decisions he ever made. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar. Number one, North Korea today blew up a liaison office that it has been operating with South Korea and threatened to move troops into the demilitarized zone, dramatically ramping up military tensions on the peninsula as the nuclear-armed regime seeks more concessions from Seoul and Washington. 
The joint facility in the North Korean border town of Kaesong, which the two sides opened in 2018 as a de facto embassy in the absence of formal diplomatic ties, was demolished around 3 p.m. local time. There are dramatic images on South Korean TV of smoke billowing near the heavily defended frontier. The destruction of a rare symbol of cross-border cooperation follows an increasingly aggressive tone towards South Korea in recent weeks amid a deadlock in diplomacy with the United States. They're also hungry, and they're wanting more assistance and aid. Earlier in the day, North Korea's army, one of the world's largest, warned that it is ready to surge forces back into the DMZ, specifically areas that the two Koreas had previously agreed to demilitarize. The North has also been criticizing plans by defectors in the South to launch pro-democracy leaflets across the border that are intended to promote human rights and undermine the dictatorship of Kim Jong-un. Number two, Emily Bloom said she barely had time to dive to safety before a gray Kia with its engine revving was driven through the intersection where she had stood moments earlier in downtown Gainesville, Florida, protesting police brutality. While marching with fellow protesters in the Richmond suburb of Lakeside, Rachel Kurtz said she, her husband, and their 11-year-old son had to leap to the sidewalk and out of the path of a blue pickup truck. In the Capitol Hill neighborhood of Seattle, Dan Gregory fell to the ground, shot in the shoulder after he attempted to stop a black Honda Civic headed toward a group of protesters. And in front of the Bakersfield Police Department in California, Lexi Colbrook said she watched in horror as an SUV hit her friend who managed to stumble toward the sidewalk and escape serious injury. These incidents are among at least 19 cases in the past few weeks in which witnesses or police say civilian vehicles were driven through massive demonstrations after the May 25th killing of George Floyd in police custody. In at least eight of these 19 events, a driver faces criminal charges for what prosecutors describe as a deliberate act. Nina Satia, Emily Davies, and Dalton Bennett have tracked down as many people involved in these incidents as they could. What's happening echoes the 2017 vehicle attack at a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that killed Heather Heyer, a counter-protester. They're occurring amid a surge of internet memes on alt-right websites featuring terrifying messages like, quote, all lives splatter and run them over with pictures of bloodied trucks. Allegations have also surfaced about actions by law enforcement. The New York City Police Department has opened an investigation into a May 30th incident in which two of the department's SUVs were driven into a crowd of protesters. Number three. Lahua Gray, a 32-year-old product manager in Austin, wants to risk her life for a coronavirus vaccine. A cloud of potentially deadly microbes would be spritzed up her nose if she is allowed to participate in what's called a human challenge trial. It's built on a deceptively simple premise. Researchers inject healthy volunteers with an experimental vaccine and then expose them to the pathogen. If the vaccine prevents volunteers from getting sick, the study can accelerate development of a promising formula. This approach has been used to test malaria and cholera vaccines, and now in laboratories and conference rooms, preliminary discussions are unfolding about the feasibility of employing it in the quest to find a weapon against the novel coronavirus. The obstacles are formidable. Infecting healthy people with a potentially lethal virus with no treatment to save them from severe illness or death raises some of the most fraught, ethical, scientific, and philosophical issues in the history of medicine. Exposure to pathogens in challenge trials is usually permitted only for diseases that aren't fatal or that have treatments available. No such assurances exist for the coronavirus, which has now killed more than 435,000 people worldwide. 
Large-scale trials of coronavirus vaccine candidates are slated to begin this summer and fall, but they involve more conventional approaches. When Lahua explains to her family her interest in potentially participating in a challenge trial, she says it starts out being a conversation about how FDA processes work and ends up being a conversation about how she's about to risk her life. Despite that risk, she and more than 28,000 other volunteers have joined a new online organization called One Day Sooner, hoping that by placing themselves in the path of the virus, the pandemic will end a little sooner. She told our Ben Guarino and Carolyn Johnson that she draws motivation to participate in a challenge trial from her grandmother, who is vulnerable to respiratory disease because of lung problems. Lahua's girlfriend and parents have been supportive. A close friend is not. Whenever she reads something about long-term damage, that's what she's worried about, Gray explained. She knows it's possible that she wouldn't die, but she would have permanent lung scarring or something like that. But as she put it, if I can save lives with very little risk to myself, I almost feel like, how could I not? And that's The Daily 202 for Tuesday, June 16th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.